welcome to the Tres Vista Talk podcast, where we engage with senior asset managers and advisors across a broad range of topics. Tres Vista is the leading outsourcing firm for the financial services industry, supporting over 1,000 clients with over 10 trillion in assets under management. Hello, this is Abhilash Jekamar, co-founder and managing director of Tres Vista. On today's Tres Vista Talk podcast, I have the privilege of speaking with Ken Marlin, Ken is the founder and managing member of Marlin and Associates and the author of The Marine Corps' Way to Win on Wall Street, 11 Key Principles from Battlefield to Boardroom. Over the course of more than 30 years, Ken has advised scores of U.S. and international financial technology, data, and analytics firms on the best ways to buy, sell, grow, and thrive. Along the way, he's been an entrepreneur three times, a tech company CEO twice, a senior corporate executive twice, and an investment banker. 17 years ago, sorry, 20, nearly 20 years ago, Ken embarked on a journey to create a different sort of investment bank, one that would meld the investment banking skills he learned over 20 years on Wall Street with lessons he learned as a tech entrepreneur and the principles that he learned during the decade he spent on active duty as a U.S. Marine Corps infantry officer. Today, Marlin Associates is one of the most active M&A advisors in the IT arena, having advised on over 200 transactions in over 26 countries. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You know, you have a really interesting background in how you got to where you are today. You had a very long career in the Marine Corps. Thank you so much for your service. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that experience? Um, I could talk for hours about that experience. Uh, you know, uh, when you're 19, 20 years old, uh, experiences like that become formative and, uh, you know, in, in many ways shaped who I am today. Um I, I had somebody say to me one time, so so you're applying everything you learned in the Marine Corps to business, right? And I said, well, not exactly. I mean, I, I learned how to field strip a machine gun and not to stop in a kill zone. And neither one of those things really are particularly relevant to my, to my current life. Um, but I, I did learn many things that are applicable, um, many of which I didn't realize were applicable un, until later on. But I have come to appreciate uh, the ability to leverage some uh, some skills and uh, and some tricks that I learned while I was in the Marine Corps and use them in the business world. Yeah, you know, we hire a lot of young professionals right out of college, as many financial service firms do, and I often advise them focus on transferable skills. Right, nobody knows exactly what they'll be doing ten, let alone twenty years down the road, but there are a lot of skills that people can develop that can be applied towards any number of industries or situations, and I, you know you mentioned that you didn't quite appreciate that you were learning these skills. And I kind of describe it as the karate kid, the original one, not the newer one with Will Smith's son, but you know, he's waxing the cars and painting the fences and not realizing learning karate at the same time. What are some of those transferable skills that you feel you picked up early in your career that have been really valuable as you progressed? So some things are skills and some things are probably tricks. Um, uh, so skills, um, you know, clearly, uh, uh, there are a couple that, uh, that Marines teach you, um, the Marines are taught ways to operate independently, uh, in small groups. And it's, you know, it's, uh, it's tried to talk about leadership. Uh, you know, you see a lot of books about leadership and people say they, they, leader, they, they learn to be, uh, to be leaders in, in various ways. Um, it, it is to some extent about team building. Um, uh, Marine uh, platoon commanders carry a, a pistol uh, in a holster at their hip. And there's a saying that says, if you ever have to take that 
pistol out of the holster and shoot bad guys, you've failed. Um, your, your weapon is your platoon or your company. Um, that's who you're supposed to organize. They're the ones supposed to be killing bad guys. You're supposed to be organizing, leading, motivating them. And prior to the time you ever got in that situation, you're supposed to have trained them and put them in a position where they can win. Uh, and so figuring out how to build a team, train a team, motivate a team, lead a team so that they know what to do uh, and, and they do it well is, uh, is a, you know, something that uh, takes a while to appreciate. Um, and I say some things are tricks. Those are, that's different. Um, uh, the Marine Corps has a concept called backwards planning. Um, the idea is um, start with when uh, you want to, you want to be someplace, you want to land on a beach or you want to be in Berlin. What do you have to do in order to be there? What, what, what has to happen the day before and the day before that and the day before that and the day before that. And you backwards plan based on uh, some objective you have. And I, I have found that trick to be very useful in the mergers and acquisitions world. Yeah. Thank you for that insight. You know, you, you wrote this book, the Marine Corps way to win on wall street and it got great reviews, inspired many of your readers. What, what inspired you to write the book? Um, a, a fair question that my wife asked me as, as I was holed up uh, in front of the computer virtually every weekend for a couple of years. Um, I, it started um, not exactly as a book. It, it started um, quite some time ago. Um, uh, early in my career when I was faced with some challenges and I was trying to figure out what to do. And I realized that I could apply Marine Corps principles and solve the problem. Uh, that's a whole other podcast. It had to do with the divesting done in Bradstreet out of three businesses that were in South Africa at a time when everybody knew we had to sell these businesses. And, um, uh, and I, was talking to people about the fact that I was leveraging these uh, skills that I had learned while I was in the Marine Corps and, uh, and it was working somewhat to my surprise. And they said, you know, you really ought to write, write a book about it, write articles about it. And um, so I started thinking about ideas and I just had a file on my computer cleverly called book. And every time I, I got an idea, you know, I would see an article that I thought was relevant. I would throw it into the file. Um, at some point, I I thought maybe there's enough for a book there. And I spent a, a couple of days organizing what I had put in there into logical themes that eventually became 11 chapters in the book, although there were a lot of steps in between. But it, it was a, I mean, it, it was about a three-year process of writing the book, but it was a several year process before that of thinking about writing the book. Perhaps for the audience has been, what are the key principles and practices that one would take from your book that uh, you, you would recommend? You know, the, the book goes through 11 traits and uh, I'll bore everybody by trying to go through all 11 of them. Um, but some of the key ones um, start with the idea of having an objective um, because if you don't have an objective, there is no road that'll get you to where you, you, uh, you want to be. And, 
I see this all the time. I see it in the merger and acquisition world. I see someone who wants to acquire a, a business. And, um, you know, we're talking to a fairly large company right now that wants to do acquisitions. And it's like, to what end? What is the ultimate objective? Um, because if we can't clearly define that objective, then then we don't understand the tactics to use to, to get you there. Um, and as a corollary to that, which is that once you understand the objectives, the idea that all of your tactics need to be oriented towards achieving that objective, and you need to use discipline to not let yourself get diverted. Um, I, I used to run a run a tech company and we would have salespeople come all the time who would say, so such and such client would buy the product if only we would add this feature, this functionality to it. And that is a never ending, no win situation because there is an infinite number of features and functionality you could add to, to tech products. We had to figure out where are we going, where do we want to be with the product in a year, in two years, in three years, and only add the features and functionality that were going to get us there. Otherwise, we'd never get there, which sometimes meant saying no to uh, to a client and saying, this is what we have. This is the plan. Um, we'll probably get to that feature you're looking for, but it's, it's in the roadmap for 14 months from now. Um, uh, a slight uh, corollary to that is uh, something someone told me a long time ago. Discipline um, and focus is not about what you do. It's about what you don't do. It's about the ability and willingness to say no. Um, uh, there are... Uh, a number of other principles in the book. One uh, I call seek foreign entanglements. Um, we are in an interconnected world. And um, to deny that is uh, to sub-optimize your business. And we take that approach um, with the investment bank. I've taken that approach uh, in leading other businesses. Um, we don't define our mandate geographically. Now, we may have a client, uh, if you have a client that's dealing with the U.S. health insurance business, that may well be a U.S. business, but we have many other clients that are, that are uh, uh, dealing with a world that's not defined geographically, and we don't want to be defined geographically for them. And the result of that is that about half of our transactions have involved a non-U.S. party. Um, about a third of our of our clients have been based outside of the United States, um, and the others are U.S. clients that with which we've had a, a non-U.S. counterparty. Um, there is a there's a chapter uh, on negotiating that uh, also came out of Marine Corps experience, um, but key to that is the idea that. Um, you cannot negotiate if the other side perceives that you are unwilling to walk from the table. Um, if the other side perceives you're unwilling to walk from the table, you are no longer negotiating. You are begging. Oh, please do the right thing. Oh, please. Here's the logic why you should do it. If the other side perceives you're not willing to walk from the table. It, it amazes me how many people agree with that in principle, but when they actually get to negotiating, they 
are afraid to walk from the table. And sometimes you need to do that. Um, so there are quite a number of principles in there that, um, by the way, are applicable to a wide range of businesses, not just Wall Street businesses. Yeah, you, you know, your point on focusing on objectives, I can resonate with that one. The, the number of times I see folks disagreeing, arguing, whether in a team or across the table, you realize they're arguing about strategies when their fun underlying assumption of what the objective is, is different. And you can't argue on a strategy when the different parties have different objectives. And, you know, often people don't take the time to start a conversation saying, what are we trying to achieve? Right? Are we trying to achieve the same thing? And I think that's really important for people to pause when they get into these conflict situations to see what are they arguing about? Right? Um, maybe you can switch gears a little bit. Love to talk a little bit about Marlin and Associates. Can you maybe give us a background of you started the firm and how it's evolved and what are you guys really focused on today? Um, I'd like to claim that everything we do is strategic, but it's amazing how much of life is more serendipitous. Um, I uh, back up a little bit. Um, while I was in the Marine Corps, I did my MBA and I focused a lot on corporate strategy as part of my MBA. I did ultimately get hired um, by Dun & Bradstreet at a time when Dun & Bradstreet was being operated like a private equity firm. Um, it, it had, uh, over the time I was there, we did 100 acquisitions uh, and divestitures. It, it, there were 23 different divisions, and I was um, initially brought in an, in a troubleshooting role under the chief financial officer, but eventually did get to do strategy and mergers and acquisitions. Um, along the way, um, as I was doing strategy, mergers and acquisitions, I got to see a lot of investment banks. Um, we had Goldman Sachs on retainer for large deals. We worked with a lot of smaller investment banks who brought us um, acquisition opportunities. Um, and I started to think that would be a cool thing to do to work particularly for one of these boutique investment banks, but I really had no clue how one would do it, um, how one would move into the role. I, I liked the idea of being an investment banker in one of these boutiques, but didn't know how to make that move. Um, uh, the common theme at Dun & Bradstreet um, of all out of these businesses were B2B technology driven businesses. Um, and uh, it was a great education for me on those kinds of businesses and on the ecosystems around them. Um, increasingly, I spent time around um, companies that were selling technology enabled services and data into the financial services community. Um, we own Moody's, the bond rating agency. Um, we owned a company called Interactive Data, um, which was bought a few years ago by ICE for $5 billion. We owned a UK company called DataStream, and I was doing more and more strategy around that ecosystem. Um, eventually, I left Dun & Bradstreet, um, uh, Dun & Bradstreet started taking itself apart and selling off those different divisions. There's a whole other podcast we can do. I tried to buy one of those divisions, uh, had private equity backing and the like. Um, it didn't work. I got outbid. Um, 
Uh, I left on a Brad Street. I ran an, a, uh, a B2B fintech firm called Telecores that was owned by a bunch of Swiss banks. Um, I bought a piece of that eventually after a few years, formed a company called Telesphere. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, this is all audio and not visual. I just looked down and realized I'm on a, I have a Telesphere mouse pad under my elbow here. <laughs> um, I did some acquisitions, uh, raised uh, for Telesphere. I raised debt capital. I raised equity capital for myself. I tell people I've never been as focused on what it says in these purchase and sale agreements as when it was my own money. Um, um, and uh, eventually sold Telesphere to Bridge, um, which later got acquired by Reuters. Um, and uh, I got a call from one of those boutique investment banks that I had met with, I'd first met with back in my Dun & Bradstreet days after I had um, sold Telesphere to say, would I like to come with to them and lead their practice uh, that would be focused on many of the same kinds of B2B tech-enabled businesses that I had been dealing with uh, at D&B, at, uh, at Telecores, at Telesphere. And I suddenly said, ooh, this is a way to get into that business. Uh, and it worked. 99 was a year in which uh, the dot-com craze was uh, was high. The internet companies were high. There were lots of deals being done. I made money. Middle of was it March of 2000, NASDAQ crashed. Uh, tech markets crashed. Nobody was doing deals. 2001, uh, some people flew airplanes into buildings. Uh, the economy was in the tank. Uh, didn't make much money in 2000. Didn't make much money in 2001. Um, and, uh, I, I thought if I was ever going to start my own, uh, my own boutique investment bank, that would be timing. Now I made some assumptions. One was the market had been down in 2000 and 2001. So it must be coming back soon, like 2002. And I thought it would be good timing. It was lousy timing. 2002 wasn't any good either. Neither was 2003. That was the beginning of 02 and the rest is history. That's fantastic. Now, so you've been through disruption and dislocation and turned it into an opportunity. Where do you see the opportunity coming out of this current disruption? Um, I have a lot of great theses based on my crystal ball. The question is, will my crystal ball be more accurate than it's been sometimes in the past? Um, uh, I think that there are that this is a very serious disruption that we're going through right now. And just as there are a lot of restaurants that will survive this, there are also a lot of restaurants that won't survive a lot of small businesses that will survive, but a lot that won't. I think that um, there are disruptions. Some of the disruptions that's going on, and by the way, I'll come back to this, but the same applies to investment banks, law firms, accounting agencies. Um, um, there are some trends that have been going on for a long time that the pandemic has just accelerated. Um, 
you take shopping, for example, people have been moving to online shopping for quite a long time, and that's put pressure on some kinds of retail stores, not all. Um, and, you know, the pandemic has sort of accelerated that. Um, I think there's been a movement uh, in the investment banking world to more uses of technology for a long time, and the pandemic has simply accelerated that. Um, so, um, you, you know, some of these trends aren't, they're never going back to where they were. I think my personal crystal ball is that this disruption is not going to be over soon. I, I think that we have another two years anyway of disruption going on. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I don't mean to say that It'll be exactly the way it is now with countries shut down, with uh, everybody required to wear masks everywhere. Uh, you know, I think a lot of those things will change as um, people get better at treating COVID and uh, as vaccines are developed. But I do think that, um, look, it, it, it actually took two years for New York to come back to a semblance of normality after 9-11. Um, uh, we came back quicker from the disruptions after the housing crisis of 2008 and nine, but it still took a year. Um, I think this one will easily take another two years during which many small boutique investment banks, accounting firms, law firms will not survive. Um, I think we are in a very good position to survive, uh, and perhaps to thrive. We will see. Um, part of it is use of technology. We've been very strong believers in use of, using technology and outsourcing since the outset. We have no IT department. It's outsourced. We have no finance department. It's outsourced. All of our billing, all of our accounting, uh, uh, we use uh, uh, professional employment organizations, PEO, to manage all of our HR efforts, our payroll, everything we have ever been able to outsource, we've always outsourced. And that stands us in good stead now. We're also big believers in technology. So we were already in the cloud. Um, all of our files are in the cloud. We have VPN access to everything. So we have been in a great position to sort of move out of the office and into people's home offices um, and continue working largely without interruption. Um, the one challenge is that in any sales process, person-to-person uh, -to -person contact is way better than person-to-Zoom con uh, contact. Um, and um, so our business is down a bit from last year, but we're busy. And I think we can sustain that, whereas I'm not sure everyone else can. Um, so right now I'm feeling pretty optimistic about 2020 and 2021. And I do think we're going to continue to have disruption through 2021. Yeah. You know, you talked about outsourcing and obviously that's the business we're in and we're seeing a lot more interest now. Uh, than we had in the past because people are also redefining what are their core competencies. Maybe you built an IT team once upon a time because you thought you had to or a finance department or an analyst bench. But as people are in this remote environment, they really think about what 
is our business really and what do we need to have in-house versus being able to outsource. Now, pardon the pun, but I'd like to change gears and talk about your race car driving hobbies. Uh, you know, just kind of to close, you know, it's an interesting thing that I learned about you recently. Can, can you share with us a little bit how you got into race car driving and how someone who doesn't do it but is excited by the uh, get into it? Uh, once again, I'm not sure that I, it was particularly strategic. Um, I've always liked the idea of race cars. Um, another one of those things where, A, I didn't know how to get into it, and B, I couldn't afford it. I, uh, I bought a used street Ferrari, you know, 20 years ago, um, it, it wasn't one of those high-end million-dollar ones. It was a, it was a, it was an older one, and I had this. I, I, you know, my wife bought me a uh, one of these five-day race schools at a nearby track, and I, I then tried to take that sort of used street Ferrari that I had and take it on the track, and I quickly realized that all I accomplished was burning up two thousand dollars worth of tires. Um, it streetcars are not meant to, to run on tracks. Um, and, uh, I was talking to a local mechanic who, um, fixes sports cars and he had a, a used Ferrari race car in his shop minus an engine. That's kind of an important part, uh, that, uh, <laughs> Uh, somebody had owned blown engines twice, decided didn't want to do that anymore, said, sell the thing. The mechanic had sourced another engine and I said, okay, let's give that a shot. And uh, that got me into racing. And then I had to go learn how to race and go to race schools and found a race series. And uh, I've been racing cars now for about 15 years. Well, if you ever want a, a rush, try driving in Bombay. It's, yeah. it's a whole different type of, driving experience if you like thrills you won't uh, get speed though i've not been to bombay i have been to mumbai and that's scary enough uh not sorry sorry not to mumbai to delhi i've been to delhi uh, uh yeah, yeah you have to deal with road rage in delhi yeah it's pretty crazy oh wonderful well, ken thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today it's been a really great conversation uh thank you for having me i appreciate it um and uh i wish you guys the best of luck you as well. Thank you to the audience. Take care. And with that, we come to the end of this episode of the Dress Vista Talk podcast. Thank you to our listeners and we would love for you to subscribe, rate and leave a review wherever you access podcasts. Please follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to stay updated on additional content. To know more about how we support our clients on due diligence, business development, portfolio management, fund administration, data analytics, and other areas, feel free to visit our website and reach out to us at www.resistar.com. Any information, opinions, and recommendations presented by our speakers are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of their firms or Tresvista and should not be constituted as investment advice. Mm-hmm.